Tonight, I'm going to talk about a very special document called, entitled Letter from a Birmingham Jail by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the first thing I'll say is that this is, this is quite an iconic document. I really think it's one of the um, central American documents along with the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Gettysburg Address, and of course, Dr. King's I have a speech, I have a, I have a dream speech. And it, it's funny, you know, the, the I have a dream speech, of course, is very inspiring. But letter from a Birmingham jail, it's a more sustained argument and ultimately it's much deeper than the I have a dream speech. Um, it's amazing to have both these documents from this man. And I'll say at the outset, of course, the letter from Birmingham jail is an astonishing anti-racist document. Um, and not coincidentally, it's a deeply spiritual document. Um, as, as I've argued in other Dharma talks, I really feel that anti-racist work, when it's understood properly, is the equivalent of a classical yoga. It, it demands the same level of personal growth work and self-transformation, really. So before I, I start sharing quotes from this document, I'll just fill in a bit of the history, how this document came to be. Um, Birmingham, Alabama was a, obviously a, a deeply segregated city. The downtown areas, the businesses had segregated lunch counters, segregated restrooms, all that. The citizens had been working for months. The citizens of color had been working, trying to change this. And in the spring of 1963, they invited Dr. King and his group to come to, to, out to Birmingham to help address the situation. And so, of course, they tried to negotiate. The negotiations went nowhere. And then they did nonviolent trainings, and the folks who had these nonviolent trainings, these, these young men of color, would just go and sit at the lunch counters. And of course, people would beat the crap out of them. Then these, these young men were arrested. You know, the, the, the victims who were beaten were then arrested. Um, they were doing marches and demonstrations, and then all of a number of the, the adults of color were arrested and thrown into jail. Dr. King himself was arrested and thrown into jail. Um, at a certain point, they made a very controversial decision, um, Dr. King and the other leaders. Up until that point, there had been a lot of high school students saying that they wanted to participate, and the adults were saying, no, no, let the adults handle this. But then after so many adults were in jail, they decided to let... The, the high school students participate. Um, and of course, that's the day that the, the sheriff, Bull Connor, brought out the police dogs and the fire hoses. So there were all these iconic images of these, these high school students being attacked by police dogs, blown away by fire hoses. This was all over the national news. It was all over the international news. Of course, the Soviet Union loved this. You know, look, look at what a mess America is. Um, and so it, a lot of attention got focused on Birmingham. And so a day or two later, 
these ministers, these white ministers, most of them were were Christian. There was there was a, a white rabbi also. They they wrote this document called Call for Unity, and they they publish it in the paper, um, essentially saying, you know, we agree with the goal of racial e- equality, but we disagree with the methods being used here. We don't like outsiders coming into Birmingham, and this was kind of a veiled reference to Dr. King. Um, you know, it, it's not good that you're breaking laws, and you know, these things should happen. You should let this happen gradually and not force the issue. All this, and um, just there was an incredible amount of white privilege in this call for unity, and it was infuriating to Dr. King when he read this. And so in jail, someone, someone basically snuck him some, some paper and he started writing this response from jail and then he completed it once he was released. Um, and this is the, the document we know now, Letters of Birmingham Jail. He, he, he published it in the paper. Later on, he, he published it with some other essays in book form. So in the chat, I'm going to drop the quote sheet. This has a number of quotes from this document. So in the chat, I've just dropped the quote sheet. In the first quote, where he's he's talking about this this call that this this um, charge that he was an outsider, and you know, of course, he pointed out logic, you know, the very logical thing. You know, he didn't barge into Birmingham. He was actually invited by the people in Birmingham to come. But then this passage, he continued with this passage at the top. But more basically, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century BC left their village and carried their, thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so I am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly, res- constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. And so this is a, a powerful passage of course, he's calling on biblical tradition. He, he was a preacher. In fact, he, he had a PhD in theology. He understood the Christian tradition very well. Um, one way to think about this is how far are we willing to go for the sake of what is right? You know, and just even mer- metaphorically, how far out of our comfort zone are we willing to go for what we know is right. You know, and it, it's a good question for all of us. You know. And and what does it mean to be someone who regularly extends themselves for what is right in the world? Now this second quote, he was criticized for you know, coming to Birmingham and creating tension, you know. And we, we know now from, you know, the last thing that white fragility wants is tension, you know. But he said, uh, my citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent red resistor may sound rather shocking, 
but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive, non-violent tension which is necessary for growth, just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myth and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so we must see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. And of course, a, a question posed by this passage to us is, what is our relationship with tension? You know, and, and obviously, as he says, you know, there, there's violent tension. There's, there's all kinds of unhealthy tension. You know, if someone is being inauthentic and we know they're being inauthentic, you know, there's, there's tension in that. Um, are we willing to create tension to stand in our authenticity? Are we willing to create tension to make a stand for what is right? You know, and, and the deeper question is, what are we more attached to? Are we attached to our own conviction to truth? Or are we attached to our comfort? You know? And, and as with many of the spiritual traditions, uh, Dr. King here is also reminding us that, that being attached to our comfort is, is not a particularly good thing. One of the one of the many criticisms he was he faced is, you know, the these these folks were breaking laws, and how how can the people of color, you know, on the one hand they're asking people to obey laws like Brown versus the Board of Education, how can they be breaking laws also, you know, and it's really this brilliant answer that he gives. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in the eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts the human personality is just. Any law that degrades the human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. And so there's a lot in that passage. Um, first of all, I'll just point out Sometimes we forget Dr. King did have a PhD in theology. I mean, any, anyone who's quoting Augustine and Aquinas is not a lightweight, you know. It, it's actually one of the many things that's astonishing to me about Dr. King 
he was an astonishingly intelligent man. But when he spoke, he didn't sound book smart. He sounded very down to earth. He was this, he could take all that intelligence and communicate so effectively. You know, even to people without grade school educations, they could get what he was saying, you know, and that that's very powerful. Now, certainly part of what's going on with this passage is, you know, makes us think about what laws are just and what laws are unjust and what would it mean to challenge unjust laws, you know, and, and certainly, certainly that is worthwhile thinking about. But I'll also say laws are public rules. They're rules that we all share together, but we all live by a personal set of rules, the rules by which I live my life, the rules by which I judge myself and judge others, you know. And it's a great question. So the question simply, how fair am I? You know, how fair am I to myself? How fair am I to others? You know, and it's a, it's a layered question in a way, because of course, when we're calm, right after meditating, you know, all, you know, all calm and relaxed, probably we can be reasonably fair to other people, you know. But what about when I'm scared? What about when I'm hurt? What about when I'm defensive? What about when I'm triggered? How fair am I then? You know. That, that I think, is a challenging question for all of us. And I think it's also a question, if, if I'm triggered, if I'm not at my best, am I, as a man, more likely to be a little more unfair or vent a little more at a woman? You know? Or as a white person, might I be a little more willing to vent at a person of color than another white person? You know? And I'm not saying that this is necessarily true, you know, but it, it's certainly important questions for all of us to be thinking about, you know, what, what are the ways that I'm fair and unfair? And, you know, especially when I'm triggered, when I'm not at my best, is my unfairness impacting some groups more than others, you know? In the next quote, he goes back to the, the theme of tension. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase from the transition from an obnoxious negative piece in which the Negro passively accepts his unjust plight to a substantial and positive piece in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We, are mere, we merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out into the open where it can be seen and dealt with like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up but must be open with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed with all the tension its exposure creates to the light of human consciousness and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. So that's an astonishing metaphor in many ways. And again, you know, it, it brings to mind 
sometimes tension, and this is tension in interhuman relationships and also tension within the psyche, tension of various kinds can be raised when we're starting to uncover something difficult that needs to be uncovered, you know. You know, and I think we've all had the experience, you know, in friendships, in relationships, you know, that conversation that's brewing that we don't want to have that conversation and it's just, it's brewing or, or that, or that place in myself, like I know I need to face it, but I don't want to face it, you know, and all the tension around that. Um, And really what he's implicitly arguing for here is a kind of, um, almost appetite for growth, appetite for truth, you know, like a, almost like a bring it on kind of, kind of sense, um, even though it's going to be hard. In other Dharma talks, I've talked about what I, what I like to frame as the difference between small-minded courage and large-hearted courage. Small-minded courage is when I'm courage up to where I think my limits are, you know. And I'm always selling myself short with small-minded courage, you know. Whereas large-hearted courage, it's almost a trust that, you know, if I throw myself into, if I throw myself in with authenticity, I'll find the resources I need once I'm in the middle of it, you know. It, it's kind of a trust in the self and a, and a trust ultimately in truth and a trust in the power of following my own root of integrity. Another quote from this document, a short quote. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And that, that's really Buddhism right there, first of all. And it really is, how can I say, this is saying, and also Buddhism talks about how we're all connected. And it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely sentiment. Yeah, we're all connected, you know. How would we really live if we really believed that we were connected to everyone on earth? How would that really shape our lives if we really believed that? If we really believed that we were woven together in one, in one garment with everyone else, you know? It's a powerful thing just to think about. And what, you know, what kinds of ways am I living my life? What might I have to let go of if I realize I'm connected to everyone else, you know? And that whole idea, you know, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And, and certainly that's true in a, in a political or social sense, you know. But that's also true energetically, you know. If there are ways I'm not being fair to myself, what makes me think I can be truly fair to anyone else? If there are ways that I'm not truly loving to myself, what makes me think I can be loving to anyone else, you know? 
you know, and really this this deep this deep way that our own internal issues and internal blocks are woven very much into our interpersonal interactions and the fabric of our lives. Another short quote. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. And certainly in a, in a political sense, that, that has been demonstrated time and time again in history. Um, what does it imply for our own freedom? What does it imply for our inner freedom, you know? And what are the parts of us that we don't give freedom? What are the ways that internally we are not free? You know? And, and what would it mean to allow those places that are not free, allow them to demand their freedom? You know, just feel into that a little bit. You know, what, what are the ways that you're not free? You know, it's a challenging question for all of us. The next quote. I must confess, over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizens council or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefer, prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with the goals you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of good faith is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from ill people of goodwill. Lukewarm acceptance is more bewildering than outright objection. Ah, yes, I'll share the, the quote sheet again. There we go. And so there, there's a lot that is in that passage and a lot that's very powerful in that passage. Um, one of the many ways to think about this passage in our own lives is um, what are the ways that I'm like those people in some of my relationships? What are the ways that I'm looking for comfort rather than standing in my authenticity? Looking for comfort rather than really being curious about what another person needs, you know? What are the ways that I settle for a negative peace 
which is the the absence of tension, you know. And again, you know, it it's good questions for all of us, you know, what to what extent, you know, how authentic am I being in every situation in my life? The next quote, I think, is my favorite from the whole letter. He wrote, You spoke of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. At first, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of an extremist. But as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? Love your enemies and bl- Bless that bless them that curse you, pray for them that that despitefully use you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Was not John Bunyan an extremist? I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a mockery of my consciousness. Was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Was not Thomas Jefferson an extremist? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? And I really love that, you know. It's not a question of are we going to be extreme or not. It's the question of what, what are we going to be extreme about, you know. Um, and in some ways, you know, you could, you could frame it as, you know, when we're all on our deathbed, the thing that we most present to us is what we've been extreme about, you know, am I going to be extreme about fighting for love, fighting for truth, or am I going to be extreme about protecting myself and protecting my comfort, you know? You know, what, what are the ways that we're, we're willing to be extreme, you know? And to some extent, it's, it's an extreme goal simply to say, I want to be authentic every moment of my life. Like, that, that's extreme in some ways, you know? You know, in some situations, it's relatively easy to be authentic. In some situations, it's the hardest thing in the world, you know? You know, what... What would it mean to be, to be an extremist for authenticity, you know? The final quote. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time of early Christians, when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. 
Whenever the early Christians entered a town, people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict Christians from being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their efforts and examples, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and the gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often in the contemporary, so often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structures of the average community is consoled by the silent, the church's silent and often vocal sanction as things are. You know, and obviously he's talking very much in terms of the Christian church and the history of the Christian church. I, I will say historically it is one of the astonishing things about Christianity that it was, you know, it how can I say, the historical crucifixion of Jesus probably took place in about 30 AD. And by 30 years later, there were vibrant Christian communities throughout the Mediterranean basin and vibrant Christian communities of people willing to risk their lives for this new truth, you know. And so, you know, it may be that if you come to a meditation group on, on Monday night, you don't consider yourself devoutly Christian, and that's fine. But in what way do you conceive of the sacred? In which way do you order your life according to the sacred? And is the, is the sacred, is spiritual practice about increasing your own comfort? Or is it about Powerfully, powerfully transforming yourself and your impact in the world, you know? And what would it mean to be driven by the sacred? Of course, it would look very different in, in you know, the Bay Area in 2024. It would look very different than it looked from, you know, early Christians in the first and second century. But what would it mean to be, as it were, you know, God intoxicated or Tao intoxicated or Dharma intoxicated, you know, running our life, you know, so much from that sense of, of that, that deep sense of connection, that deep sense of being driven by the sacred, you know, any single one of us has the power to transform the world. That is the power that any single one of us has if we really were to develop all the gifts that we have. So that, that's the end of the, the quotes from the Letter of Birmingham Jail, and I highly recommend the whole thing. I think someone put the whole thing in the chat. It really is an astonishing document. A few quotes from the Bible. Dr. King would have known all of these very well. The first is just, it's commonly called the Beatitudes. It's, it's at the be very beginning of a section called the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so people persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so that's challenging in many ways, you know. I love that, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It really is, you know, I think a, a kind of um, more, more facile Christian, conventional Christian interpretation might be, you know, I'll just sit here meek and then God will come along and say, you inherit the earth, you know. But I think a more, almost a Buddhist way to think about it is, insofar as I am meek, insofar as I'm dropping my self-importance and my self-involvement and all that, I can be fully in present. And when I'm fully in present, I quote-unquote inherit the world that is in front of my face. You know? So there's lots of ways to think about that. But that the last one in particular is very challenging about... <coughs> how can I say? You might say the Dharma... The, the, the dharma of, you know, being persecuted for righteousness' sake, you know. And again, how, how willing am I to risk myself? How willing am I to risk, you know, social disapproval or, or that sort of thing because I'm standing up for what is right, you know. Another quote, a challenging quote, and Dr. King would have known this quote very well. This is from the Gospel of John. It's from the Last Supper Discourse. Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And of course, what is very powerful about that quote in context, Jesus is giving that quote at the Last Supper. The next day, he would lay down his life when he was crucified. You know, and, and how can I say, the, the, you know, everyday life doesn't necessarily prevent, you know, present to us, you know, opportunities to die for what is right. But to what extent do I sacrifice myself for the people close to me, you know, not not sacrifice in a in a kind of you know a false victimy way, like you know look, you know false you know victim martyr kind of thing, but when I intentionally let go of my self importance, let go of my self attachment for the benefit of others, you know, what does that? How does that look like? And what are the ways that I can let go of myself or disattach of myself a little bit more to serve others a little bit more? This final one, 
it's attributed to Jesus, but it, this is from the book of Revelation. So this is the Jesus appearing to John the Divine, John on Patmos, in the whole vision that, that became the book of Revelation. In the beginning of the book of Revelation, Jesus dictates these seven letters to seven different churches. And so this is from one of these letters. I know your works. They are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. And I love that image that, you know, you're lukewarm, you're bland. Jesus is going to spew you out of his mouth, you know. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating question. How would my life taste to God? How would my life taste to the sacred? Would God taste my life and say, bah, that's yucky, <laughs> you know? How would it really taste? Would it taste like love? I mean, love is very yummy, but would my life taste like love if you really looked at all of my life, you know? You know, certainly at my best moments, I'm very loving, but, you know, all of us are very loving at our best moments. But what would the totality taste like, you know? So those are the biblical quotes, and then I have a, an assortment of other quotes here. A Nepalese saying, great love and great achievement involve risk. This wonderful one from Rumi, be passionate for the friend's tyranny, not his tenderness, so the arrogant beauty in you can become a lover that weeps. And I think we all know the arrogant beauty in us, you know, that 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 place when we really get it in our, you know, I want what I want, you know, this kind of thing. Charles Dubois says, the important thing is to be able at any moment to sacrifice what we are for what we could become. Carl Graf Durkheim, Graf Durkheim said, the man who, really being on the way, falls upon hard times in the world, will not, as a consequence, turn to that friend who offers him refuge and comfort and encourages his old self to survive. Rather, he will seek out someone who faithfully and inexorably helps him to risk himself so that he may endure the suffering and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that man exposes himself over and over to annihilation can that which is indestructible arise within him. In this lies the dignity of daring. You know, it's, and it's a wonderful quote. And it's funny, you know, often, often when we're struggling and we go to somebody to ask for advice, we kind of know the flavor of advice we're going to get, you know, from the different people we go to. And do we go to the people that are encouraging us to be smaller? Or do we go and get advice from the people who are encouraging us to be larger? You know? And, and what, is, what is the pattern in the way that we seek advice? You know? Rabbi Joshua Loth Liebman says, Maturity is achieved when a person accepts life as full of tension. 
a quote from the conservative politician Barry Goldwater, I would remind you that extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. I think it, it's almost the ultimate irony that uh, 50 years later we have a quote from Barry Goldwater agreeing with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But so it is. From Reverend Thomas Dubay, Many people have a tinge of religion about them, but it is only a tinge. They take their religion as it comes. They may pray and worship more or less regularly, and they usually stay clear of publicly disgraceful crimes, but they are lukewarm, colorless. Seldomly or never do they read a serious book about prayer or study to learn more about God and his plans, to discover how to be humble and chaste and patient. They are always too busy for the one thing necessary. So again, that, that quote has a little more of a Christian feeling, but phrase it in terms of Buddhism. How serious are we about the Dharma? How much do we really care? Like if I say, I consider myself someone who follows the Buddha Dharma, you know, if someone followed us around with a camera and just looked at us every moment in our lives, could an objective observer tell that Buddhism was important to me? You know, from watching the way I move through the world? You know, what kind of conclusion would somebody reach if they followed us around with a camera? What kind of conclusion would they reach about our values if they just saw us in every single moment of our lives? You know? And what would it mean really to embrace the Dharma in a serious way, to commit to it in a serious way? Another quote from that remarkable woman, Bell Hooks. The practice of love offers no place of safety. We risk loss, hurt, pain. We risk being acted upon by forces outside our control. Everyone wants love until they realize that's what love really is. Tara Brock said, there's a great power in sharing a difficult truth. Letting your vulnerability be seen by a trusted, attentive other can unravel a lifetime of shame. Naming painful feelings without blame can deepen and strengthen mutual entombment and compassion. Relationships become more vibrant. Finding the courage to take the risk to speak what is true enlarges you. You become more real to yourself, more intimate with others. George Barnes just says quite simply, true visionaries are never lukewarm. Now the next quote is interesting. It, it's from a, a webinar during the pandemic that I, I attended given by the poet David White. And at some point during the seminar, he, he made a toss off comment about, you know, personal growth involves facing the right kind of peril finding the right kind of peril and exposing yourself to it. And of course, in the question and answer at the end of the talk, he got the very predictable question, well, how do I know the right kind of peril from the wrong kind of peril, you know? And so this, this was his response to that question. Well, of course, I think one of the definitions of peril is that you don't distinguish to begin with. You learn quite often by inviting the wrong kind of peril, and certainly there's... There, 
and certainly that's in all of our great stories. To begin with, you don't know what's good for you, but you're willing to be brave enough to find out by inviting, by being willing to risk the wrong kind of peril to begin with. And the more watchful you are, the more in readiness you are, the earlier you will catch it in the process. One of the signposts of maturity is that you recognize very early when a conversation is not good for you or a relationship is not good for you. And whereas it might have taken you seven years to get through that when you're in your 20s, it takes you seven minutes to say, I'm not interested in this conversation, actually. And it's interesting. If you had known that one thing when you were in your early 20s, you could have saved yourself seven years of difficulty and humiliation and heartbreak. But there's no honest way of finding out but to risk yourself in the world. That's very powerful. And it's that last line in particular is so powerful. There's no way of, there's no honest way of finding out, finding out about ourselves and about our own truth, but risking ourselves in the world. Brene Brown said, Owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy, the experiences that make us the most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness, we will discover the power, the infinite power of our light. And finally, Balud Benzazi said, a true martyr is not an opportunist, who dies to get a reward of eternal life. A true martyr is a humanist who dies to save a life.